TED Audio Collective. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Michael Ovitz about his long and controversial career as a Hollywood power broker. When you're in the eye of the storm, you really don't see around you very well. Here's Debbie with a word from our sponsors. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make design matters possible. Wix.com puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD, now for free with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. Michael Ovitz changed the business of show business. In 1975, with a $21,000 loan, he co-founded Creative Artists Agency, which quickly became the world's leading talent agency. As a leader of CAA, Michael's clients included Paul Newman, Barbara Streisand, and Steven Spielberg. But Ovitz has never been a mere Hollywood mogul. Over the years, he's deployed his deal-making skills in advertising, finance, and philanthropy. In other words, 
Michael Ovitz has had a remarkable and very public career. He tells his side of the story in a new memoir, Who is Michael Ovitz? Michael, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much. Michael, I understand that at one point in your adult life, you washed your hands 30 times a day. <laughs> Not at one time, all the time. Oh, so still? You oh, still yeah, do that? No, I'm a germaphobe. <laughs> And you also, I believe, insisted that your assistants not touch your food. So I was paranoid about getting sick. Is really, it's actually quite practical. It wasn't any kind of a phobia. I just didn't want to get sick. Getting sick, for me, was lost time. I always uh, marveled at physicians when they would see 50 patients a day and not get sick. And then I realized what they were doing is they're washing their hands before and after every single patient that they would see. So I adopted that protocol completely for practical reasons. And are you a big fan of hand sanitizer now? Uh, I don't know that it works, but I try it. (laughs) You were born in Chicago. You grew up in California's San Fernando Valley. Your dad was a Seagram's liquor salesman who worked seven days a week, 365 days of the year. And he had hoped to open his own liquor store, but never did and taught you that you needed to be in charge of your destiny instead of working for someone else. How much of an impact did that have on you? Well, I think it had a huge impact on me. I mean, I watched my dad as what they would call in Japan a salary man. I mean, he he made a very small living. He worked really hard, but he always wanted to work for himself and never could get the money together to buy a liquor license and open a liquor store, which was his life's ambition. And for me, what became instantly clear, not just from his discussing it with me, but just watching it and being around him and his friends, those of his friends who worked for themselves just had it better. And they were all manual blue-collar workers. One was a plumber, one was a postman. No one were professional people. But the plumber, for example, had his own plumbing business. It was small, two-man organization. But no one told him what to do. And I used to watch my dad struggle with the people that he worked for. And it was a simple signal for me, don't do that. You were a Cub Scout growing up. And I understand that when you were nine, you not only got one paper route, you actually got two. Why so many? Well, I <laughs> I guess I was a little possessed at nine years old. I actually needed the money on a weekly basis, because my parents didn't have any money, so whatever I would make is what I used for spending money. And I realized that the tract of Jason to where we lived, where I had a paper route, became available, and I asked for it, and they gave it to me. And frankly, I added on another 45 minutes and doubled my take. When you were also nine years old, I guess nine years old was a fairly formative year for you, you discovered the world of movies. And I was wondering if you can share with us what you found just four blocks away from your house. We lived in a tract house in the San Fernando Valley, and four blocks from us was the RKO Studios. And let's remember this was a time when there was no such thing as terrorism. There was no such thing as heavy security. There was no such thing as fences, really, to speak of. So we would go over there, uh, especially during daylight savings time, after we did our work, usually get done around 5 o'clock, 5.30, and go over there and catch the tail end of them filming these half-hour television shows that Archeo was making. And they were in black and white, and it was just absolutely fascinating. Of course, we always got thrown off the lot, but they weren't mean about it, and they knew we'd come back soon, and we did. And probably twice a week, we would go over, sneak in, go to a different set, try to blend in, which was impossible at that age, and watch. And as I look back, it was a major influence on me without me even knowing it. In 1965, as a teenager, you got the first job you actually wanted. Music Corporation of America was restarting its tour program on Universal Studios' back lot. As you were putting yourself through college, you worked every spare hour. And I guess one could argue that this really wasn't even the beginning of the evidence of your drive, given how many paper routes you were doing and Cub Scouts at nine years old. What do you think at that time was driving you so hard? It was always the same thing. It was always finance. I had to put myself through college 
So I had to work full time. I actually worked almost 60 hours a week uh, when I was in UCLA. And it took its toll, but it was worth it to me because I actually was earning quite a bit of money at the time for someone who was in school. And it allowed me to put myself through school, have extra money, and I needed to save money to get myself prepared for what might be coming up. Now, you majored in psychology at UCLA. Why Why psychology? Well, I had a major in psychology, a minor in business, and it was originally the other way around. I decided that it was really important for me to understand how people would process things and think and what really drove them and what were the uh, real, real reasons that people behaved the way they did. Because I could see that whatever I did, whether I was a box boy at the local supermarket, I was a paper boy, or I was a tour guide, everything was about relationships with people and how they behaved. And I wanted to know what caused their behavior, including my own, by the way. You graduated from UCLA in three years in yes. 1968. You then married your college sweetheart, Judy, and you applied to three different talent agencies, William Morris, Creative Management Associates, and J. Walter Thompson. Right. What motivated you to be a talent agent in the first place? I understand your parents really wanted you to be a doctor. Well, I actually was pre-med for a very short period of time at UCLA, and when I was working at Universal, I got hired away to go work at Fox, which was a total accident. And I actually ran the tour department at Fox and had 75 people working for me. I wasn't 21 yet. Was that when you were making $600 a week? Yes. And that really cemented everything for me. And the other thing that cemented something for me is I remember being at UCLA in a lecture hall, an 8 a.m. lecture. I took 8 a.m. classes so I could get to work by 9.30. And I remember being in a lecture hall with about 400 kids, and I remember writing furiously notes on this lecture. And I looked around. No one was writing a note. And when we were done, I went up to one of the kids, and he was really very nice. And I said, is it me, or what's the deal? Why was no one taking notes? And he looked at me and said, well, it's also elementary. That was the end of my pre-med career right there. And it didn't take much to push me over. So <laughs> so why why a talent agent? What gave you Well, the... you know, it wasn't just a talent agent. You mentioned the third company you mentioned was Jay an Walter ad Thompson, advertising yes. agency. Yeah. So I decided I wanted to be in something that had to do with creativity, whether it be talent or marketing, branding, which you're very familiar with, something that was creative, something that created IP. I understand that a mere three months later... At your very first job, you were working for the top Morris executive in Los Angeles. But a few months after that, you were promoted to junior agent. However, <laughs> you were really unhappy because despite the promotion, you had missed a self-imposed deadline for your trajectory. Can you talk a little bit about what that deadline was and why you were putting yourself under that kind of pressure? Because I've always set... Uh, goals for myself. I'm very goal-oriented, and I've done this my entire life. So what was the goal? Because within 120 days, you needed to be at a certain point with a certain number of clients. You had never done this before, and yet you were sort of creating these audacious goals for yourself. Well, the 120 days was a stunt. I, I mean, it was completely done to get myself a job. I went in for I knew I had an interview coming. I spent a month trying to get this interview with the head of HR, William Morris, and I needed to differentiate myself from everybody else. So I needed to go in and do something outrageous. So I came up with this idea. When I read in their handbook, it's a three-year training program, I came up with this idea that I could do the program in 120 days. By the way, I had no idea what the program was. <laughs> I had no idea if I could do it in 120 days. I didn't know anything, but I was looking to say something that was a little shock and awe. And... I went in and I said this to the gentleman who was head of HR, and I got a reaction, which was a great lesson for me. He started laughing so hard, he literally fell off his desk chair. He said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. The minute he said that, I knew I had the job because I moved him. And it didn't matter that I moved him to laughter or to tears. It made no difference. But he said to me, you're hired. 
He said, you'll never do it in 120 days. I said, if I don't, you get your money back. So how, how close did you come, and how did you respond to your own, I guess, I hate to even use the word, <laughs> failure at making this happen? Well, I wanted to become an agent in 120 days, and I didn't. To well, make, junior to, agent. Is... Junior, I hate that word, junior. <laughs> and, and, and when we at CA, we eliminated that. You're either, you were a partner, period, or an agent, and, that, or, and or agent, and that was it. So I actually made it in six months, and... I got very lucky in that I put myself out in front of the senior executives at the Morris office by staying late. I discovered by accident that the president of the company would go to dinner with the founder at 6.30 every night, but he came back at a quarter to eight, literally by eight o'clock at the latest every single night. So the call time was 9 a.m. I came in at 7, sometimes 6.30, and at 6.30 at night when everyone went home or 7, I went and positioned myself at the first desk on the executive floor on a secretarial desk and just sat there and worked. And lo and behold, the president of the company would come back and sure enough, three, four days into this, he needed something. It's 9 o'clock at night. So who are you going to call? You know, not Ghostbusters. I was going to say, don't make they, me say they, it. They didn't, I couldn't help myself. So he, he came out of his office and he came up to me and said, I need you to help me with something. He didn't ask. He told me. I couldn't have been happier. So what he asked me to do, I did to the hundredth power. And then he invited me each night to do something else. And then it was more and more and more. And three weeks later, his assistant called in sick. And he made a specific phone call to the HR department asking for me to be his fill-in assistant. I went in, and he wasn't used to someone being there 14 hours with him because he came in early as well, and he left really late. I came in earlier than he did. I left later than he did. But I arranged everything for him from things that were important on his desk to things that were less important. I answered letters for him did drafts for him. I made his life really much easier. And he saw that, and he thought that the way that I functioned showed some promise. So he promoted me pretty quickly. You started this description about your relationship with him by saying that you got lucky. And I'm not really sure what luck had to do with any of that. Look, who knew he was going to come out of his office? That was a guess I had. If he didn't come out of his office or he didn't need anything, who knows? In those days, I don't know if you remember, but we used to have a thing called paper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a lot older than I look. Yeah, well, you don't look old <laughs> enough to remember. And we had a thing called a mimeograph machine. Oh, yeah. I did that in college. And there were hundreds and hundreds of pages of mimeographed mail. Oh, that blue ink. And it just sat on the desk, and then he'd come back to the office at night, and he'd start to go through it, and I watched what he did. He wrote little notes to the senders at the top right-hand corner of each piece and put it right back in the mail. Oh, wow. Occasionally, he would come to things that needed to be copied or he needed another answer on. There was no Google, which means someone had to go find an answer for him, and I became his answer man. Legendary screenwriter Barry Levinson was your first client, your Absolutely, very first yes. client. How did you convince him to hire you to be his agent without any previous clients? So I'm home one night. It's Saturday night. It's 11.30, and I'm watching a television show, which is the precursor, and I mean really early precursor to Saturday Night Live. It was hosted by two local disc jockeys, Loman and Barkley. And I'm watching this show. It's about 10 to 12 at night. And all of a sudden, some guy comes out as the roller skating rabbi. And I'm looking at this, and there's very little dialogue, and I can't stop laughing. So I watch the crawl, and it says, roller skating rabbi Barry Levinson. And Monday morning, I call him up at NBC, the local NBC station. I ask for Barry Levinson. Lo and behold, he gets on the phone. And I said, my name is Michael Ovitz. I'm with the William Morris Agency. You don't know me, but I know you. And I said, I saw you. I think you're fantastic, I'd like to meet with you. And he had just come into town. He didn't have an agent. He didn't know anybody. So this was pre-diner, pre... Oh, yeah. pre-everything. Yeah. He was just sketch writing for a local one-market TV show. And we started talking, and he signed with me immediately. 
And he was my first client. In 1975, you and several of your colleagues, including Mike Rosenfeld, Ron Meyer, and William Haber, among others, decided to defect from William Morris and start your own agency. Why? Well, we were—this all goes back to a very simple meeting we were all in. There were these weekly staff meetings where everyone was allowed to attend. And this was a weekly television meeting. The film meetings were separate. They didn't believe in blending motion pictures and television, which, by the way, we felt was a giant mistake the way the business was going. We felt that artists could cross over. But putting that aside, we were in a meeting, and it was an apocryphal meeting for us. I was sitting in the back of the room with Ron Meyer, and all the executives would sit at the table in the very same seats. We would sit as far back as we could intentionally to make a point, a relevancy point. It was almost... We're back here, we're not relevant, but we really are because we're young and we understand what's important right now. And we had an incident where the president who I worked for made a big announcement that he had signed a song and dance lady named Ann Miller. Not an untalented woman, but a woman in her late 50s who was mostly Broadway. And we were sitting trying to figure out how to sign movie stars. How do you sign Paul Newman? How do you sign Bob Redford? How do you sign Dustin Hoffman? How do you sign Al Pacino? How do you sign Bob De Niro? Not how do you sign Ann Miller? We're the William Morris Agency. We have extraordinary client lists. We should beef it up. And Ron, Ronnie, to his credit, raised his hand and got into it with all the senior executives that this was a mistake for the image of the company. And they pushed back really hard and really gave him blowback. And when we were leaving, we found ourselves sitting in a room talking, saying this is a bad direction for the business. And that was the beginning of the end. You set up shop in a small office in Century City with folding chairs and card tables. And you were hoping to create a medium-sized, full-service agency, share proceeds equally, and do without nameplates on doors, formal titles, or individual client lists. And you even had corporate guidelines, such as be a team player and return phone calls promptly. Did you write all of those guidelines, or was it a joint venture? We, we did it together. We had all worked together at William Morris. We knew what to do and what not to do. With the goal of creating a, a mid-size agency, especially given how goal-oriented you'd been, were you surprised at how fast it all grew and how much of a behemoth it ultimately became? Ron and I weren't surprised. We had a game plan from the beginning. The concept of being a mid-sized full-service company was really not our concept. That was a joint discussion we all had. We wanted to build a talent agency that dominated the talent business, and we had this thesis that we wanted to represent 100% of the talent. And didn't say it too much because it sounded so insanely over the top, but the reality was it was a good goal, a good goal. We wanted to represent anyone who was talented. And we wanted them all under the same roof. The reason we wanted them all under the same roof was to give them leverage because the studios, networks, publishers, record companies were in the driver's seat. They had the money. They had the distribution. There were huge barriers to entry. Today, not so much. Today, we're doing a podcast. There is no distribution. You just put it up and you get eyeballs, and if it's good, people listen. If it isn't, it goes by the wayside. In those days, if you didn't have access to those distributors, you had nothing. So our goal was to flip the power curve and bring it back to the talent. Within a week of starting your business, you sold a game show called Rhyme and Reason and The Rich Little Show, and Creative Artist Agency, CAA, was officially on the map. Over the next 20 years, you worked with actors including Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Barbara Streisand, Madonna, Bette Midler, Tom Cruise, and Meryl Streep, comedians and talk show hosts including Bill Murray and pretty much the entire cast of the original Saturday Night Live, David Letterman, and directors including Steven Spielberg, the aforementioned Barry Levinson, Oliver Stone, Ron Howard, Stanley Kubrick, and Martin Scorsese. You also orchestrated the making of many films that are now considered classics, from Tootsie, The Verdict, and The Color of Money, to Dances with Wolves and Schindler's List, to Ghostbusters and Rain Man. 
All of these incredible stories and many, many more are contained in your remarkable new memoir, Who is Michael Ovitz? So before I continue with my questions, I want to ask you, what made you decide to write this book at this particular time? So I didn't decide this recently. I've been working on this for 10 years. We represented a lot of fantastic authors, and I never gave that up and did a lot of work for Tom Clancy, Michael Crichton, Stephen King, really brilliantly talented authors. So I had relationships at the publishing houses, and one of the publishers suggested that I take 10 deals that I did and do a book that they titled, working title, 10 Deals. And I kind of liked that idea of writing them down. I particularly wanted to do it before I had early Alzheimer's. <laughs> so I sat down, started making notes, and as I turned in the notes and turned in the pages, I got asked more questions and then more questions and more questions, and I kept writing, and I kept filling in space about between the deals or what made the deal happen. And then I started filling in stories that I remembered. And then about four years ago, my daughter-in-law got pregnant, my oldest son's wife. And I said to myself, my God, I'm going to have a grandson. I think I better write everything down and I better say how I feel. And I then took what I had and started to reshape it and play with it over the last four years. Why the title, Who is Michael Ovitz? It's a very good question. The title is based on me coming to a point in my life where I wanted to know who I was, what I did, why I did it. Could I have done it differently? Could I have done it better? Could I have done it worse? And why did I do what I did? And I started to get that when I was writing between the deals, if you understand what I'm saying. Oh, absolutely. The thing that I'm struck by is how candidly vulnerable and self-aware you are in the book. You're you're highly critical of a lot of your own behavior and motivations and seem to be seeking an understanding not only of, of your behavior, but sort of why people do what they do, which is what I found so fascinating about the book. Well, thank you. For me, it's important that one understands that I went through a period where it was winning at all costs. Yes. Period. And there was a lot of collateral damage to that. I felt that in a service business, one had to be all-knowing, had to have a lot of information, and could show no vulnerability. That in the chain, if there was a weak link, the chain broke, and the service business would spiral. And I felt very strongly about this, and I was completely, completely myopic about it. How much of that was based on how you felt about yourself? It's really interesting. It it had little to do with anything personal. It was all about a business idea. It was all about let's be invulnerable. Let's be the all-knowing. Let's be in a position where we have all the cloud, all the leverage, where we bring the game back to the talent. The game was always on the other side. And our goal was to try something different. Let's not let talent sell their themselves short. Let's not let them take their IP and auction it to the highest bidder. Let's take that IP and put them together with other pieces of talent that can expand that IP, make it more valuable, and then bring the whole package, if you will, to the people that put up the money, but not until. You never saw almost ever out of CAA an auction for a singular piece of material or an actor or a director, it didn't exist. In many ways, you rebranded the way that artists and talent were positioning themselves in the marketplace. Well, our goal was that every artist become self-sufficient. So we created production companies for hundreds of our clients, hundreds of them. They had their own little businesses, and they developed projects for themselves they would take projects that were offered to them as well, but our goal was to have a mix. When we started in the agency business, which at the time was a lazy business, there wasn't a lot of turnover. Clients didn't leave their agents. There wasn't a lot of poaching. It wasn't a very aggressive business except in the format of being an agent, but it was mostly a phone order business. Someone would pick up the phone, say, is Miss Millman available? And you'd say yes or no, how much is it? What is, can she work these dates? That was taboo for us. 
we felt if someone called us with an offer for someone, we were doing a terrible job, that we had to be in control of everything. Control, aggressive behavior go hand in hand. And when you do them the way we did, we developed it as a science. And we knew how to use all of those tools. You've written that you taught your agents to reach for the club every single day, but to never pick it up, and said, power is only power until you exert it. It's all perception. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that. I found that to be kind of spooky and fascinating and scary all at the same time. Well, there's, you know, the word power itself is a misnomer to me. I don't think anybody has any power. I think maybe the president of the United States has power because he can push a button. But at the end of the day, power is only the perception of what people think you can do. Because when you start to do it, you lose the power. And I always told the agents that we had this giant club. And the minute their hand touches that club, they lose. They lose. It's got to be the perception that that club is there and you can wield it. But if you use it, it's a problem. Speaking of perception, when you first started CAA, you and your partners took out a car loan and bought five Jaguars for $1,500 down each. $15,000 each. But didn't you have to put only $1,500 down? Yes, we put $1,500 down. That's correct. (laughs) My God, you've read the book. (laughs) Um, So you ordered CAA license plates, followed by a hyphen and the partner's initials, so the first vanity plates. Um, You described it as a rank extravagance for a company that would file zeros on its tax returns for its first three years. But in a city of fantasy, a big show was essential. Do you think that that would work now? No chance. (laughs) But in those days, the power of perception was extraordinary, and everyone lived this crazy lifestyle. When we were at William Morris, they had a pecking order for cars. If you were a senior, senior person, you got a Cadillac. If you were in the middle of the company, you got a Buick. And if you were in the low end of the company, like I was, you got like a Ford Mustang. Oh. <laughs> so we decided we're going to just go ahead and we're going to take all of that perception and we're going to change it. And buying a foreign car was a big to-do in those days. So you were projecting something you wanted other people to see about you and hoping Absolutely. they'd believe it. We wanted them to think we were successful. The funny thing is we could barely afford the payments. You described CAA as a fortress, one that worked 24-7 for its clients. All talent had four or five agents on them versus just one. And you had a reputation for working longer and harder, not surprising given your origins at William Morris, and giving clients literally anything they needed from a gig to an appointment with the best doctor in the city to incredible gifts. Is it true, Michael, that when Sylvester Stallone said he liked your Ferrari, you gave him the title to the car? That is true. <laughs> Why? Did he, did he accept it? He accepted it gladly, and, <laughs> and, and he, sh- he should have, by the way. Sylvester Stallone, who was Ron Meyer's client, was paying us a a small fortune of commission. I mean, we charged... Well, that was back in the first Rocky movie days. And he was making, you know, $10, 15000000 million a picture. We were getting 10% of that. It was a small thing that I could do for him. The stories of making movies like Rain Man and Tootsie and The Color of Money in the book are extraordinary. But you also did so much more. CAA also entered the advertising space and worked with companies like Coca-Cola, where you were responsible for creating their massively popular polar bear characters, which are still in use today. What made you decide to do that? And can you tell our listeners how you won Coke's business? Because frankly, that is one of the best parts of the book. The whole story about what you did to win that business is classic. Basically, I came in every day, and when I put the key in the door, I knew I had this giant overhead. So every day I tried to think, what can we do to expand? What can we do to provide better service for the clients? What can we do to provide jobs for the clients? And what can we do to keep our agents really interested in what's going on? And completely by accident, I met the guys that ran Coca-Cola, Roberto Goizetta, who passed away, a great guy, and... His partner, Don Keogh, also passed away, CEO and COO of the company. They bought Columbia Pictures. 
And I will never forget, Don was an amazing man. And I remember sitting at the Allen Conference. Herb Allen gave a conference every year. I remember sitting on Herb's porch with Roberto and Don, and they were being incredibly open that Pepsi was really eating their market share. And in, Pepsi had a fantastic ad agency in BBDNO, and they had created the Ray Charles singers. And you had these commercials coming on with Ray Charles playing away hot music with three really attractive young women singing back up for him and dancing, and it just struck a chord with younger people. So Roberto says, what would you do? which was a, probably a mistake for him to say to somebody like me. And I said, let me think about it. And I did. I went away and I thought about it. I called him back and I said, I'd like to come in for a meeting with the 12 worldwide department heads and I'm going to bring 10 executives from different demographics from our company. So I brought people from every division of the company, people that had different takes on entertainment, on ads, on daily life. And we went and spent a full day in Atlanta and we listened to what they had to say. Went back and we designed this concept that we would do 30 to 40 commercials a year for the same price they did seven by taking control of it, not farming it out and using our clients to produce and direct. And then also outsourcing things that would keep our overhead down like animation. And I went back and I said, we're going to do this like a relay race. So we're going to do first of the year is hopeful. We're going to come into Valentine's Day and do love. We're going to go into April and do family around Easter, come to the summer, and we're going to do a refreshment, come to the fall, it's back to school, November, Thanksgiving, family, Christmas, refreshment, snow, polar bears. And I said, we're going to do it like a relay race. And they loved the idea. They had 370-plus account executives at McCann Erickson working on the account. They put us into what's called a shootout with them. In the same room. You in the presented same room. to each other in the same, same room. room. And I had the most extraordinary team. I had a woman named Shelley Hochran who ran marketing at both Columbia and Paramount. She had done a genius campaign for Warren Beatty's movie Reds. And it was very unique and different. And I had a young man named Len Fink, who was the number two guy at Shia Day in L.A., which was a great, as you know, boutique agency. And we prepped. We did 30 commercials. I bought Armani suits for Shelley and Len. Bill Haber, my partner, came with. And the four of us went into that room. We were in there. We were up for breakfast, checking out the room at 8 a.m., feeling really comfortable, knew our stuff. And 10.30, the other side hadn't shown up. 11, they hadn't shown up. And at about 11.30, about 30 very tired people who had flown from New York that morning came into the room. We flipped a coin to see who would go first. They won, and they thought going second was best, was the greatest thing that ever happened to us because we wanted to go first. But they won the coin to us. They let us go first. Shelley and Lynn and Bill were so good, so good that by the time I made the closing statement, there was no competing with us. As a matter of fact, we did such a good job that the other groups stopped I was, <laughs> they presenting. They stopped in the middle. They stopped in the middle. They just <laughs> gave up. They gave up. I mean, we just did a terrific it's job. It's incredible. But it's all preparation. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's an incredible part of the book. No different than anything else in life. Great movies, great preparation, great sporting teams, great preparation, great ad campaigns, great preparation. We were prepared. Yeah. We did. We just had quality work. And it's still being used today. Still being used today. We're quite proud of it. With all of the success, you weren't very public. Um, you described yourself like this. Mike Ovitz was a potent boogeyman because he wasn't a person. He was a specter. I avoided red carpets. I'd enter and leave parties through the back door. I kept the rights to almost all photos of me. I didn't do any press for the first 10 years and very little after that. Why? I felt that it was a mistake to 
take a profile ahead of the client. I also felt that I had no upside in doing publicity or creating a profile for myself. The only thing that could happen is it could go down. There wasn't any positive benefit of doing it. In retrospect, I was probably wrong, but I decided also since I was performing an act, Ron Meyer and I made a decision that one of us was going to be good cop and one of us was going to be bad cop. Was it a coin toss? Or no, did you no, just no, no. willingly take the bad cop? We, we made the decision that I would be the bad cop. And the weird thing is when we worked as a team at William Morris, we were both good cops. I was a good cop for the first three, four years of the business. When we decided to go into the motion picture business, we decided that we needed to play off each other. And we did. Do you think that a bad cop is always required in a corporate setting? I can't answer that. It was required in the business we had. You're dealing, you're constantly dealing with people and you're dealing with crowds and you're corralling different entities and it's so complicated, the agency business. People that aren't in the business don't understand how complicated the creative business is. I mean, the reality is someone walks into your office, says, I have an idea, and they tell you the idea. You have to be able to decide right then and there, how does the idea look? Who should be in it? Who can execute it? Where are you going to get the money for it? Does someone else have the same idea? Is something like this in development elsewhere? There's so many things you have to think about. And what I loved about the business was just that process. Some creative person comes in and pitches you an idea, and it ends up being a record or a movie or a television show a concert or a book. And it's the most extraordinary thing. To this day, I'm mesmerized by the talent that creative people have, that they can actually do it. But our job was to assist. Can it be done? Can we get you the money? Can we put it together? So it really was a lot of smoke and mirrors and coupled with knowledge and information and what I call frame of reference, which means you had to know everything all the time. You had a public persona and a private persona that almost seemed diametrically opposed to each other. And I'd like to read one passage of the book, which is extremely candid and self-deprecating. My clients played characters on screen. I played them off screen. 99 out of 100 people, their act is who they are. But anomalies like me manufacture their characters from bits and pieces of those they're with, reflecting them back to themselves. I was a chameleon, becoming whomever I needed to be to make everyone comfortable and close the deal. My basic character was buttoned up, omniscient, wise, loyal, indomitable. But I could be a sports car aficionado with Paul Newman just as easily as I could discuss fiscal policy with Felix Rowayton, the banker, or dive into the specifications of the Walkman with Akio Morita, the head of Sony. So to those I worked with, I was a control freak, a shape-shifting machine, a terminator. Yet the private me, the one only my closest friend saw, was ultra-sensitive to every slight and constantly concerned about threats from every direction. This me, the man with back pain and uneasy memories, wandered into my living room to look at Jasper Johns' White Flag, his 1955 masterpiece. So, Michael, why such an abyss between who you were publicly and privately. It seems like the private person was quite a lovely person, but yet you were hiding him. That person I didn't think could be successful at that business, period. It's not any more complicated than that. I didn't think that the person that I thought I was was going to make it in a cutthroat business. Let's not forget that traditionally the entertainment business is one of the most cutthroat businesses in the world. Everyone's vying for something they most likely are not going to get. Think about when we cast Tootsie, the director and the star sat in a room and interviewed close to 300 actresses. For the Jessica Lange part? Yes. Now think about that. You come in, you've worked so hard as an actress to get ready for this. You think about what you're going to wear, what you're going to say, and you read your scene and you're going in to see Dustin Hoffman and Sidney Pollock. And you look at their background and you say, my God, they're just, you know, they've done amazing work. I really need this part. You have a one out of 300 chance and none of them got the role. 
Wow. None of them got the role. It went to an established actress. Originally, the role was going to go to a less established actress. That is a tough, tough business. And then you have to come back and do it again with someone else. So I walked into a business that was cutthroat, dog-eat-dog. This business is tough or get out. It's still that way. And it's been that way since it started 100 years ago. After calls and meetings day in and day out and being so many things to so many people, whatever they needed, making you a true chameleon, you write that when you got home, you had no clue who you actually were. You also write that because I couldn't afford to be human all day long, because I had to seem interested and attentive and far-seeing and wise with everyone, it made me less human over time. I became insensitive, impatient, someone to be avoided, if at all possible. So, Michael, as you became the most powerful man in Hollywood, it seems like you lost the best parts of yourself. (laughs) You know, it's so interesting. I used to marvel at my clients that would go out and become a character in a film. Some of them handled it by never turning the character off Mm. and staying the character through the whole movie. And I remember going on sets where I'm talking to someone who's still in character. You look at their face and you know them and you're talking to them, but they're talking through another person. It happened to me. It just happened to me. I would come home and it would take me an hour and a half to come down to go back to who I was. It was very difficult. You go on to state that you kept your emotions a secret even to your closest friends like Dustin Hoffman. And you state, I never wanted to show anyone, even Dustin, the strength of my feelings because I worried that emotions were a fatal weakness. Do you still feel that way? No, I'm pretty open or I wouldn't be sitting here. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually a good point. (laughs) No, I came to that realization late in my life. But to me, Being emotional, being vulnerable, those were taboo. You can't do that if you're running a business like I was running. There were too many variables, so there needed to be consistency. How did you change? How did you get to this place today? Well, I I worked pretty hard at it. First of all, I came out of the business. It took me 10 years to get to the point where I could start to write the book. And then while I wrote it, it was incredibly cathartic. I can honestly say I feel the best I've ever felt right now means I'll probably drop dead when I walk into the street here. On, Please don't say that, Chelsea. Michael. No, no. <laughs> but I felt, I, I, I feel really good because I feel like I've just come through the other end. It's taken a long time. You were also quite candid about your insatiability, and you write about how while your fear of poverty receded, you were like an athlete who wanted to keep topping himself, setting new records, and you state, there'd be the adrenaline rush when we sent out the internal memo, Robert Redford is now a client. Fifteen minutes later, it was, what next? In 1979, when I was 33, Ted Ashley at Warner Brothers took me aside and said, I'm going to give you some great advice. He grinned ruefully. And knowing you, you're not going to take it. But here it is. I could have worked 10% less, and it wouldn't have made a difference in my professional success. But I would have been a lot happier. You go on to write that Ted was absolutely right on both counts. It was great advice, but you didn't take it. And I want to know why. You you also go on to say, I see now that I could have worked as much as 20% less, and it wouldn't have cost me. If I'd even worked 10% less across 30 years, that's three whole extra years of life I'd have enjoyed. So what, what kept you striving so hard? How did you metabolize that success so quickly that 15 minutes after signing Robert Redford, you needed the next big hit? Because I never enjoyed the victory. Ever. To me, a victory was just the end of something that needed to be begun again. I remember I was involved in the sale of Universal to Matsushita Electric and worked for a year and a half on it. And a close friend, uh, Herb Allen II, who was the banker on the deal and taught me so much, and we had done several other deals together, he looked at me and said, he said, you should enjoy this now. And I didn't. I went out that night, had dinner, and started talking about what was the next company that we could sell. It was behind me. It was done. It was over. Now, that came from a place of growing up in the San Fernando Valley and living in a, a very, very, what I considered to be substandard lifestyle. I didn't want that lifestyle. I didn't want to be my dad. 
You know, it's funny. I was talking to a close friend of mine whose father is incredibly wealthy, and he grew up with a very wealthy, successful father. I grew up with a terrific father who was not wealthy or successful. We both feel the exact same way, but for slightly different reasons. I didn't want to be my dad, and this guy wants to be better than his dad. So there's things that drive us, and the psychology of it isn't apparent when you're in the middle of the fight. When Ted Ashley, who was this chairman, CEO of Warner Brothers Pictures, and a former agent who built a giant agency, Ashley Famous, when he said to me, you could back off 10%, it went in one ear and out the other. And then I realized way down the road that the momentum that we created could have carried us where I could have backed off 25% because people thought we were doing what we were doing, whether we were doing it or not. It didn't make any difference. That's what he was trying to tell me. Couldn't see it. I was blind as a bat. Now that you've learned this all, I mean, if somebody with the remarkable career that you've had is was still sort of pushing themselves because it's never good enough, what advice would you have for somebody that's just out there now making a career for themselves that's that feels this way, that's driven because, and their foundation, they don't feel good enough without it. What would you tell them? What, what advice could you give? They've got to be in touch with themselves. They've got to take a step back constantly. I didn't ever take a step back, and it was a mistake. And they've got to celebrate their successes and analyze their losses without the ability to step back appreciate what you've done or criticize what you've done and be open about it, but to slow it down occasionally. There's a saying which is so trite, stop and smell the roses. <laughs> trite but true. You frequently told your agents, make your clients think they're your friends, but remember that they're not. Yet it would be your clients who would stay loyal for the most part and your friends who were ultimately going to betray you. One of the biggest betrayals came around the time you were 48. You were burned out at CAA and looking for one last job before you turned to government or nonprofit work. And in the book, you talk about how tired you were. And I was wondering if you'd read that particular section for us. I think it would be so much more powerful if you read it as opposed to me reading it. I will do it because you're the hostess. And <laughs> Thank you. you're in control, so I'm going to do whatever you tell me. Ooh, okay. <laughs> so it goes like this. I never stopped loving artists and the creative process. I never lost my fascination for the magic of making something from nothing. But agenting was a young person's game, and you could run just so long and so far. At 48, having run since my first day at William Morris, I was tired. I was tired of getting up at 6 a.m., and squeezing in a workout while on the phone with Europe. I was tired of rolling through 300 calls a day, talking until my throat was raw. I was tired of having lunches and dinners scheduled three months out. I was tired of flying 600 hours a year, the equivalent of one work week a month. I was tired of owning six tuxedos for the 30 obligatory events between November 1 and Christmas. I was tired of returning calls till 7 p.m., going to dinner till 10, coming home to a mountain of pink message slips, calling Japan till midnight, and starting over again six hours later. I was tired of submerging myself, drowning myself, really, in the lives of my clients and their families and significant others. Our clients' worries about the size of their trailers and how big their billing would be had come to seem increasingly petty. The truth is, I'd always disliked having to see to people's creature comforts, making sure our actors and directors had fresh guava and the perfect nanny. You're an adult. Run your own life. Thank you for sharing that, Michael. It's really one of the most touching parts of the book, this sort of self-reckoning that you have. I was shocked to read that you had come to the realization that you'd always been faintly embarrassed to be a talent agent. Why? It wasn't until we opened CA and became successful that I felt I was at least a principal in my own business. But talent agents for years had been depicted in films and television shows as swarmy, you know, cigar-smoking, fast-talking, not very educated, not very elegant people. And it always was a, a source of embarrassment to me. I didn't want us to be one of those people, hence the dress codes and the, 
and, you know, the way we behaved, the cars we drove, the office building, the idea of bringing IMP to design our building, that was not an accident. It was all thought through. How do we create something that's classic by the, at the time, the world's greatest living architect? And you still own that building. I do own that building. <laughs> that was a smart one. You left CAA after this bout of of real, I think, exhaustion. You leave CAA, this company that you'd built with your bare hands, and you accepted Michael Eisner's offer to lead Disney with him. And you write that it didn't work out from day one. I tried and I failed. It was one of the biggest failures of my life. You were effectively forced out after a year and a half. And afterward, you stated that you were livid with Eisner and furious at yourself. You felt awful, worthless, and an utter failure. And it was made even worse when you were told by a friend that Michael Eisner didn't want you at Disney so much as he wanted you out of CAA in order to weaken the agency's power, all agencies' power, in fact, and declare that I'd been a thorn in Disney's side for too long, so he pulled it out, humiliating me every day was just a bonus. How did you manage through that time? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I would get up, early, go in, and I assumed that, like anything else in my life, if I kept my nose to the wheel and I just kept moving forward and trying to do good things, good creative things, and build relationships within the business, that I could overcome it. And I just was wrong. Did you ever figure out what the intention was or the motivation was? Was there ever a possibility that... It could have worked? Well, when we were talking about it in the planning stages, it seemed like the perfect storm. Um, There were teams that were running large companies very successfully. Murphy and Burke at Cap Cities, ABC. Daly and Semmel at Warner Brothers. Goizetta and Keough had the most extraordinary relationship, the two of them. And when he decided to buy ABC and merge it into Disney, it was a behemoth business. It would take more than two people to run it. So, frankly, I assumed, and assumed incorrectly, that he was sincere, that it would take two of us to run it. But it was a mistake from the day that I showed up at his yeah, house. Yeah, the first day. You very just, first day. I knew in the reporting structure. Well, no, I knew it was over. I knew it was over before it started. What kept you continuing on doing it for as long as you did? I didn't have any choice. I had a contract. I had already sold CA to the nine young guys that we left it to. And I had to continue. I couldn't just quit. It must have been quite gratifying after the uh, shareholders or the board, I don't remember which one, uh, wanted to sue because of your severance package, but the judge judged in your favor. And and the fairly large severance package that you received was was deemed to be fair. I am... worked really hard at that trial because I viewed that trial not just as a trial but as a statement of fact about what really happened. You write this about the aftermath. In 20 years, I went from a complete unknown to a comer to being hailed as the most powerful man in Hollywood. After a few years of that, I became the most feared man in town. And once I left CAA, when it was safe for everyone to vent... I became the most hated. How on earth did you get back to yourself? Time is an amazing healer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how do you get over that kind of betrayal and anger? You, You write about how much you loved Harold Pinter's play and movie betrayal. And that's mm-hmm. also one of mine. And betrayal and loyalty is really, really important to me. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you get over how do you forgive? It's not a question of forgive. It's a question of forgiving myself. It was me that I was upset with, that I allowed myself to get dragged into these situations. So I had to forgive myself. It took a long time to get there. Writing the book, as I said to you earlier, was incredibly cathartic for me because I had the opportunity to sit down and look back from the beginning and then look at the motivations. What did I do? What did I do right? What did I do wrong? Look, some of the things that I did were very right. That company's still going today, 43 years later. Yes. So with respect to the things I did wrong, it's good to understand them. I didn't understand them. When you're in the eye of the storm, 
you really don't see around you very well. It's easier to see when you're not in the middle of it. Would make a great movie, this book. I don't know about that. (laughs) It's not going to get packaged by me, that's for sure. In the time since you've turned your attention to Silicon Valley and are working with internet pioneers Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, and they asked you to sit on the board of LoudCloud, one Mm -hmm. of their businesses, and a few years later, HP bought it for nearly $2 billion. You later advised the two on creating Andreessen Horowitz to be, as you described it, the CAA of Silicon Valley. Uh, you've worked with companies including Medium, Palantir, Clout, Priceonomics, GoodRx, and others. And looking back on everything, do you see more similarities or differences between CAA and Silicon Valley or Hollywood and Silicon Valley? Well, I'm up there now and I have been for the last 15 years and I view everything that I'm doing exactly similar to what I did at CAA. I find it so interesting that so many of the battles that you fought, I also recently interviewed Beth Comstock, um, and so many of the battles that she fought 10 years ago were battles that seem so ridiculous now in terms of the way in which we consume media and content and entertainment and so forth. And I find it interesting that how, how, how many similar types of obstacles need to be fought when you're on the cutting edge of new technology yeah. and new ideas? Beth is one of those people that can see the future and was always ahead of the curve. The thing about the Valley that's so great is that it's very similar to the when we started CA. It's got really brilliant young men and women. It's flush with ideas, flush with money to finance those ideas, and there's this collaborative effort up there that is really commendable by all of this talent. And frankly, I'm still in the talent business when you get right down to it. I think you're in the ideas business. Well, talent have the ideas. (laughs) After all this work, you write at the end of the book that you've realized that you would have been much happier as an artist or an architect. Why is that? I love art and architecture. Just love it. And you collect art. You've been doing it now for decades. You have one of the top 200 collections in the world. What made you decide to start collecting art? I've been collecting art since I can remember. Art is an elixir. When I'm in New York and I'm stressed out of my mind, I will go to MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art. I did it on Sunday. I went with my oldest son, Chris, and we just walked the floors and just got absorbed in a sea of creativity. I have two last questions for you, Michael. The first is, speaking of creativity, about the book cover. It's quite a a striking book cover, and I was really happy to see that Chris Sergio designed it, who's a a friend and a remarkably talented designer. And when I asked him about it, he said that there were some interesting stories about the cover and also the the back copy, which he also wrote. So can you talk a little bit about the the design of of the book cover? So this is... So simple and so uncomplicated. Chris Sergio is brilliant. Chris Sergio took my book on a Friday. I think we had one meeting. I had been given a lot of art for the book, not by him, by others. I didn't like much of what I saw. I took a shot at something. Chris read the book, called me on a Monday. He said, you know, I really like this book. And he said, I've got, I'm going to send you what I think the cover and the title should be. And we had a whole series of titles, none of which any of us really liked. Chris sent exactly what you're looking at. And when I got it, I called him. I said, you're brilliant, because he picked the script cover that we used to start the business, and he asked the definitive question that I'd been asking myself for the past 20 years. But I never told him that. (laughs) He's a genius. He is indeed. My last question is this. Of all your experiences and successes in both Hollywood and Silicon Valley, what advice would you give to anyone looking to make a difference in either of these worlds? Creatively, is it's the same advice I've given for 50 years. You have to believe in yourself. You have to believe in your own ideas and your own vision. I cannot tell you how many times, as an agent, a client had an idea that was rejected over and over and over again and then was made and turned out to be incredibly commercially successful or aesthetically successful. Rain Man's a perfect example of that. It was a movie that everyone turned down. MASH was a movie that no one wanted to make. I can go through this over and over again. 
where there are directors or writers or actresses or actors who come up with ideas and no one's interested and it's a no, 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 no. Dances with Wolves turned down by everybody. Finally, we got someone to give us domestic financing and rolled the dice that we could get the rest of it. And Kevin went out and made a brilliant, brilliant movie that defied the rules of length in the film business. The movie was over three hours. You're not supposed to make a movie over two hours. Now it's like 90 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Our attention spans. Different, different world. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you for joining me on Design Matters, and thank you for making our world so entertaining, and thank you for showing us in this book that power can also be really vulnerable. Thank you. Michael Ovitz's memoir is titled, Who is Michael Ovitz? This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.